Chris Disraeli, and on this edition of the GPPR podcast, we actually talked to myself, Jake, our editor-in-chief, and Olivia, our spring edition senior editor, to talk about the spring edition, uh, uncertainty, and some of the things that we are seeing uh, in the market, in politics, in policy, uh, that are uncertain. So take a listen uh, and make sure you check out our spring edition at GP, www.gppreview.com uh, and provide us any feedback. We hope you enjoy. Everybody, it's Disraeli. Uh, welcome to a very special edition of the GPPR podcast. I'm here with Jake and Olivia, uh, and we're going to talk about and give a preview and talk about the spring edition. Our spring edition theme is uncertainty. Uh, it actually launches today or today by the time you hear this podcast anyway. Uh, so go out to gppreview.com and check it out. Uh, so first, Olivia, our spring edition editor for you know this year, kind of give us a little bit of overview about what the spring edition is and some of the work that you guys have been doing over the course of the year. Yeah, thanks, Israeli. So I am so excited about this year's spring edition. We've been working hard since last summer, 2017, when... Uh, the same group of people and a few others actually sat around and talked about what we would uh, focus on for this year's theme. And it, it was kind of a natural um, you know, follow-up to last year's spring edition, which focused on disruption and how that was such a timely topic for, for that year and with you know elections surprising us and a lot of different things going on. And so this year, we're kind of... Um, no stranger to disruption, but we're trying to figure out what that means. So that's what this theme is about. It's about uncertainty. And um, it's a really broad topic, but we welcomed uh, contributors starting in the fall. We did a big push for, for papers. We welcomed contributors to write about anything that they could think about um, policy-wise or security-wise, uh, economics, um, trust in institutions. We were thinking about how disruptions really kind of changed the game and where does that leave us and how does uncertainty now color how we will make decisions and and who is this uncertainty really causing um, havoc for. So we got a great group of articles that we've been working hard all year with the authors to edit and um, have been in dialogue with about. And we also have, um, kind of following up on last year, some student voices, which we're excited about this year. Um, so just broadly, we're touching on some themes about AI in the labor force. Again, we'll see that. We'll see some um, writing on how gender actually comes to play and how there's uncertainty and how gender affects leadership and, and Supreme Court justices among the United States. And we're also talking about flood insurance policy, national security in the U European Union. So we really got a broad array of topics that we're excited to um, bring together and, and put in dialogue with each other and we'll kick it off with our launch today which will be really exciting. Yeah, we'll also have a, a uh, amazing panel um, moderated by Professor Holtz. Uh, we'll have Desmond Lockman of AEI, um, he's a financial global macroeconomist. Uh, Chris Liu, uh, a Georgetown staple, also a former Deputy Secretary of Labor. Uh, current GU fellow Katie Walsh-Shields, sorry, Katie Walsh-Shields, and Alexander Reeve-Givens, um, also Georgetown University. So really just a, a stellar crew um, with a wide range of expertise and, you know, the uncertainty, and this is, uh, we, can, we can kick off a, a discussion here and something I'm, I'm really curious about. You, Olivia, having dealt with 
Um, you know, th this is such a wide range of topics covered by uncertainty and is really ambiguous. W was it difficult going through with the pieces and, you know, uncertainty touched on such a wide range of specialties from, like you said, labor to um, flood insurance? So was, was it difficult to, like, make yourself... Did, did you feel the need to become, like, an expert in the topics that they were publishing on? Or, the, I mean, especially because, I, as readers may and listeners may not know that this this is the one time during GPPR where we rely on external applicants. Mm -hmm. These are professionals, professors um, working in the field, some McCourt alum who have gotten on the ground practice, so they know what they're writing about. So the the level is really just of an amazing quality. So what what can you just talk a little bit to like the difference between the the work GPPR typically does and working with these kind of new pieces. Right. So um, yeah, my my role in this is to really lead the the spring edition process. So um, you know, just shout out to our other spring editors who have been working on this because it's it's not just me. We've got a crew here that um, we kind of divided and conquered with these articles. So personally, I didn't feel the need to become subject matter expert in in any of these one. Um, subjects or the topics that we received, but it, it is tricky when you, you know, you establish a theme and you think you're gonna, you have all of these motivating mm -hmm. questions and we all think we're gonna talk about something come, you know, April 5th, 2018, but then you get these articles and, and they kind of surprise you in some ways. Some of them we expected, like the AI and the labor force, that's a hot topic. Um, and, and then others we didn't, like the, how does gender affect leadership? Mm -hmm. and, and that one's more theoretical and um, so we had to think of ways to um, work, in, in some instances, work with the authors to kind of really tease out, like, what is the nature of uncertainty in this topic area. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, in the end, we're going to sit back and see, like, okay, this is, you know, if, if not these, if they're not directly related to each other, these articles still are kind of getting at the broader sense of, um, the way I look at it, it's like, it's kind of a snapshot. If we were to go back and look at the spring edition in the future, um, and say, like, what was going on in 2018? Mm -hmm. What were people concerned about? I think it's a really good snapshot of some of those topics. Another one um, that is a really great article from, you know, a, a second-time contributor is about the, um, the removal of temporary protected status for, you know, like, thousands of, um, you know, residents here in the United States and how that's not affect affecting not just them directly, but... Mm -hmm our economy in the U.S., communities, neighborhoods, both here and their home countries, and bringing in some really awesome legal historical background. So if nothing else, I've actually learned a lot in this process. Yeah. If I didn't know anything about uh, temporary protected status, mm -hmm. or we've got an article on integration policies. So it's really exciting to see the, the expertise coming in and um, kind of working with that and, and, and making it speak to our theme. We're trying to shape it around the theme as best we can. Um, but yeah, it, it is a really special thing that we do to have this ex external content come in. Yeah. And uh, this year we got uh, more submissions than last, which is exciting. And, and we're always, you know, plugged for the future, always looking for yeah. uh, content and looking for more to work with. So, yeah. Do you think there's any, let, let, let's, so we, we can talk about the spring editions more, but let, let's break out into the, the broader scene here. Do you think, so in the past year, what benefits to uncertainty are there for broader policy discussions and kind of recommendations and analyses? So is there anything that like we, there's a lot of, I think, I think the, and no reasonable, you know, 
living creature would deny that things are getting more and more aggressive, mm -hmm. um, polarization. But do you think that, what, is there any positive that we can point to in the past year of like increasing uncertainty? Is there any, is there any flip side that we can kind of point to? Yeah, I think a couple of things immediately come to mind. Um, I, right now in the U.S., we're in primary seasons for 2018 elections. I think you're seeing a lot of passion from people who did not think they need to be involved in the electoral process, in part because of the election, in mm -hmm. part because of the increased polarization and the uncertainty of, you know, key policy areas in the future. You know, for the first time in, I would say, forever, you know, things like Medicare are at risk. You know, for the first time in at least 20 years, we're actually having a legitimate debate about gun control. Yeah. You know, I would say for, you know, we're having a, a debate about immigration, albeit a debate that was in some ways started because of the fact that the president wanted to make something that was certain, uncertain. Mm. Um, you know, I think so. I do think you, you do get the benefit of increased passion into the system. You know, particularly more women, record numbers of women running for office, yeah. um, which brings different viewpoints, you know, to our political system. Um, and I would tell you uncertainty is good for some aspects of business. Mm -hmm. I do consulting full time and uncertainty is great for my business. That they pay for particular for types of business. Right. Yeah. For, yeah, I mean, for yeah. Industry, specific yeah. industries. Yeah, yeah. Like, uncertainty is great. Like, Lockheed Martin's having a great year, yeah. but Facebook apparently is not. So. Correct. And, you know, uncertainty is great for certain industries because, you know, you pay more consultants and paying consultants is good for my bottom line because I stay employed. Um, you know, so, you know, I think that, you know, in some ways uncertainty does breed, uh, you know, an, an ability to innovate. You know, to kind of figure out and get ahead of the curve, which yeah. is good for business because it drives competition. Um, I would say those are the two probably positive things. Now, mm -hmm. that said, it's frustrating. You know, there is no reason why the market has basically given away its gains the last three days because the president is picking an unneedless fight with Amazon on false information, you know, because he argues they own the Washington Post, which is false. He argues that they haven't provided money to the Postal Service, which is also false. He argues, you know, now he is correct to an extent that they may not pay their fair share of taxes at the local level. But that is a local and state, you know, jurisdictional, you know, thing. Last time yeah. I checked, the Tenth Amendment existed, you know, so. Yeah. You also have local municipalities offering billions correct. of billions. dollars billions. of tax. Like, they, they are. Like, Maryland right now. DC yeah. right now is offering, you know. Almost a trillion, you know, billion plus, 10, 10 billion, whatever it is, mm -hmm. in tax breaks to get the headquarters, H2 for Amazon, which would be a terrible thing to when you think of DC and the problem that it, it has well, more broadly. Well, it's interesting. The the competition for the political players in this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. that I forget, I think um, it was a Vox piece that wrote all like the top five or, you know, I think there's like still 20 on the short list. But the potential, like bringing this many jobs elevates whoever the mayor, the governor, to a, a, another stratosphere that's immediately on the national kind of realm. So it's really interesting that that kind of like, and, and the, maybe the, the detriments aren't talked about enough. I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, uncertainty brings, breeds out ideas, you know, think tanks and actual policy solutions. Not, have they gone anywhere? Likely not. You know, I think if you, if you told me that a, you know, Republican House, Republican Senate, and a Republican president would pass a $1.3 trillion budget, which is a very Democratic-sounding budget, I would have called you a liar. 
<laughs> you know, so uh, I think that it is funny that, you know, uh, the players are acting not to their norms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, but it is brought bringing out policy ideas that may, you know, advance, particularly at the local and state level. You know, it's interesting you bring that up about the budget. I think there are, you know, there are shades to uncertainty. There are different layers to this concept. And, you you know, there there have been disruptors that have brought around about this uncertainty. I don't, I think about it as kind of like, you know, politics is not business as usual. Business is not mm-hmm. business as usual. And you're absolutely right. I 100% agree. Uncertainty is an opportunity, you know, at its core to like bring in innovation, new ideas, because you don't have it all mapped out anymore. And that creates that opening. But at the same time, you know, I, I have a hard time parsing out like whether we're dealing with superficial uncertainty. Is it just people feeling uneasy for, mm-hmm. you know, because they're hearing um, the squawk box or, or some, you know, the, the noise is really loud and so people feel uneasy and so there's this feeling of uncertainty and then how is that separate from the actual observable uncertainty that's really changing you know markets or changing mm-hmm. policy you know or things like that because I mean like you just said with the 1.3 trillion dollar like spent you know in some sense like from the friends I've talked to or like got a friend at the EPA for example and talking to people in energy you know, things are getting funded, like renewables are getting mm-hmm. funded, coal, the executive order to uh, FERC to like re-examine reliability and emphasize coal was kind of rejected and FERC's still operating independently and not politically. So there are some things that are, you know, uh, uh, beneath all the hubbub are kind of carrying on less uncertainly and which is encouraging in, in these times so, in a way. So it reestablishes your faith in the machine? In, in some ways, yeah, yeah, but I think, you know, it's to be determined. Yeah. I've, I've, I've started to see indications that, you know, maybe things are kind of carrying along, but with the uncertainty and with people bringing in these new ideas, I think, you know, if not today, things will, you know, definitely change in big ways and already have, you yeah. know, with tax bill, for example, there, there have been big, big changes that have, you know, caused their own uncertainty. But yeah, I, I'm just trying to parse out these layers and, and how they affect different people and, and what's just noise and what's actually um, coming to bear on, on reality in a big way. So that, that's a great segue that we totally didn't plan. Um, <laughs> but we were talking a little bit before we started recording is how you two personally measure and keep an eye on whatever our, the most famous septuagenarian Twitter handle of all time what the latest news is, it's it's always going to be on the front page of the Post and the Times and whatever other periodical playbook. How do you personally keep abreast of whatever the latest craze is that President Trump is throwing out on Twitter and the reactions while also focusing on, because it, it's, it's absolutely exhausting keeping up to date with it. And I think, I, I would argue, completely useless. Do you guys feel the same way? Do you guys think it's it's there should be a balance in between keeping up the date while also focusing on actual sturdy, reliable policy discussions and issues and analyses underneath, or do you think there's kind of an in between? I, I think a few things. Uh, in a normal scenario, I keep up to date with Trump's Twitter through Playbook. Basically, I read their mm-hmm. morning brief and their afternoon, you know, brief. I also read Axos, Mike Allen in the morning and the afternoon. Between the three, generally, that covers Trump's Twitter. Um, if something is really big, I think what I have noticed is that 
you know, I subscribe to, I would call the three major news, national newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so if something major that drives stocks or whatever, they send alerts, you know, on his tweets. I think Trump's tweets, and he won't agree with it, Trump's tweets are policy. He's firing people over Twitter. He's making policy over Twitter. You know, he's making pronouncements over Twitter. He's changing markets. And Twitter. he's changing yeah. markets. He is single-handedly yeah. cost Amazon billions over Twitter. And a lot of 401ks are Yeah, and something for that because Amazon's a pretty reliable stock um, in terms of and how they're disrupting markets and causing uncertainty mm-hmm. in their own way, particularly in the healthcare market, where you're seeing companies essentially make preemptive buys because of and because of the worry of what Amazon will do mm-hmm. to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Where CDS is buying, you know, an insurance company, or talking about buying an insurance company, yeah. and you know, uh, Cigna I think bought mm-hmm. Express Scripts or you know something along those lines. You're seeing pharmacies, pharmacy distributors, and peer health insurance try to come together to be a conglomerate against you know Amazon. So I, I think to your question about you know the president's Twitter. For me, I more follow more traditional. You know, news people, the people who write Playbook, but, Maggie Harper, stuff like that. But even them. even they are, I mean, Maggie and like the rest of like kind of the, the upper echelon of like the most read. You know, mm-hmm. if you go on NewYorkTimes.com right now, they will be on the top. They're typically responding and writing pieces yeah. to those tweets. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a it's a never ending circle. I would tell you, Trump. This is great TV. He admits it himself. He's actually, in some ways, he is single handedly keeping you know people employed. You know, he's driving up record ratings on Fox News, you know, because the conservative base only watches Fox News. But yet, he bashes CNN, they have high ratings. He bashes MSNBC, their ratings are up. I would suspect the evening news ratings are up. You know, we hear a lot of noise about Sinclair, and their ratings are up. You know, and national print, those subscribers are up. Who is suffering from this? Local media. Um, We talked about it a a couple Mm -hmm. weeks ago, and... The, the lead conference, uh, and in fact, shameless plug, there'll be a podcast about the lead conference that'll be up on the GDPR website soon. You know, uh, but, you know, a local media is suffering from the so much coverage and oxygen about Trump and national stuff that you can buy, get away with mass murder on the local level unless you really piss somebody off. You know, and local media is truly suffering um, and, and unable to kind of or is getting less coverage than they used to, and I think that is a, a downfall of the president's Twitter yeah. and his behavior. I gotta say, I, I admire you, Disraeli, for, <laughs> for keeping up with with that aspect yeah. of, of the news uh, this far. I, I kind of gave up um, paying too close attention to the tweet storms, you know, a long time ago, and um, I mean, that's just the part of my personality. I'm more issue oriented. I'd rather, you know, substantive. Like once it kind of, once you get beyond the tweet and into some actual, okay, market has been affected, or, or you know, congressional leaders are now considering a bill, or there's been an executive order. That's that's kind of when my attention. Something's been arraigned. That's yeah. That's when my attention. Okay, spikes. I'm gonna tune in mm-hmm. now. Um, but it's also it's unavoidable. It's not like I go days without knowing anything about Trump's tweets and that's it's so pervasive mm-hmm. and obviously biased sample here being at Georgetown and DC studying policy but you know it's 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 truly difficult to avoid um, 
never would I have thought that I would be talking about politics with so many different types of people, whereas that was never the mm-hmm. center of conversation. So, I mean, people are in, are tuned in to what's going on. And, and, and in some ways that's good because you get a lot more engagement. I think, I think that's definitely positive, but, um, no, personally, I, I find it easiest and most effective to kind of stay a few steps back and, and kind of only, focus on the tweets when, when they are, I guess, the biggies. And, mm-hmm. and also I'm married to a journalist, so I kind of yeah, cheat that'll because be, that'll be, that'll be. <laughs> there's something I really need to know. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've received a text or <laughs> come home and have the fire unavoidable. The but you know, interesting on that note, uh, the, my my husband who is a journalist and works in local news but here in DC so obviously like half of it's you know national or international news um, you know the media I think from from my anecdotal experience is really struggling with how how much attention to really give to these tweets and and when do you decide this is worthy of a new segment and when yeah. do you decide it's not are personal affairs worthy of it or or what is news and what are we just be kind of coming culturally obsessed with mm-hmm. you know yes more people are employed maybe in, in media because everyone's obsessed with trump right now but personally i find that disturbing that all of the attention is is so heavily on the executive as if it's a, a reality show yeah. i i would find it encouraging if more people were focusing on you know like you said the sturdy policy discussion what's what's actually yeah. happening you know and, and committee meetings or and things like that though though i wish i would have never read a word about the stormy daniels mm-hmm. affair um, it has been great. It, I, Amen. It, it, it is immensely entertaining and rather fascinating. The lawyer for Stormy Daniels is this amazing character, and I don't know the name off the top of my head, but he's he's fantastic. But I wish I could take back every single second that I read about Stormy Daniels, any other affair he had. It, the, at most, it is a campaign finance issue. Yes. At, and like that, that is like the proverbial wood chip in your eye with the log in someone else's or however that saying goes. It, it is completely inconsequential to the other, I mean, like Rob Mueller's doing his job. I'm going to wait until, and that's, that's another point. Like that, that's also exhausting keeping up with the newest mm-hmm. episodes so of the Russia pro, but I did, I don't know. Do you guys feel the same way about keeping up with the, the ridiculous, not even tweets, but like the, the media's, Dissection of every facet yeah, of his yeah. life. So I'll give you actual. I, I have two points that you just said. Hot takes. Yeah, hot takes. So, highly enough, as we were talking, Washington Post just pushed an article to my phone saying about Mueller that he told Trump's attorneys last month, last month that he's under investigation but is not currently a criminal target. Just all the same thing. That is hot, <laughs> hot off the presses. Wow. You know. And, and so now we're going to hear for the next 48 hours uh, what the heck that means. Mm-hmm. You know, but here's the thing. Trump never was really in trouble for Mueller from a criminal perspective. I think there's been enough, you know, you know, Justice Department rulings, Nixon, that basically said you couldn't charge a sitting president. Trump's concern has always been upon impeachment, mainly upon if he may lose the House and the Democrats bring impeachment, and then oh, he goodness. can look back. That's where his risk has always been. And his other risk is that he goes and sits under oath and tells a lie, at which point I get, do get to indict you for, yeah. you know, perjury. So which would be stupid to write on his case. 
But that's been his only risk. We know at some point that Ru- we know that Russia had interfered with the 2016 election. I think that is an mm-hmm. indisputable fact at this point. I think his inability to do anything about it is stupid. Mm-hmm. I think Congress's inability to do anything about it shows how much the Republican Party is tied to help to Trump's base. You know, and how much their base has shifted so far to the right mm-hmm. that it's unimaginable for people like Jeff Flake, who should be rolling the re-election this year, and essentially got voted out by his own party. You know, I think that's insane. You know, but I think to your real question, I, it is hard not to pay attention in our age where it gets pushed to your phone and things mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, I have, and I think Stormy Daniels, to completely agree, it's campaign finance issue, it's a moral mm-hmm. issue that, you know, you cheat on your wife, but, you know, that's between you and Milan. Exactly. You know, it, yeah. it, it, it may be a campaign finance issue, and, yeah, let's not, but we are, you know, 60 Minutes got their highest ratings in, like, 10 years yeah. of that one interview. And the only good thing was, was, was that Jonas. Yeah. <laughs> so good for yeah, Jonas. He got great. More people know about the Green Freak because everybody watched 60 Minutes. But I think, I think it's hard, you know, not to pay any attention, but it is annoying, you know, the level of the media will kind of spin up similar stories about the same thing. Same with his ever-changing cabinet. I'm tired of hearing about, uh, what's this yeah. guy's name? Uh, Scott uh, Pruitt. Pruitt. Yo, he was stupid. You live with you. It was just stupid to borrow, you know, uh, rent an apartment from a lobbyist who you actually can control. But do you think it's almost getting absurd now, though? With I mean, I I don't pay too close attention to right wing media. Admittedly, I read more left leaning sources, but even now I'm starting to think, well, maybe it's a witch hunt. Like, what are they doing? Like. Just constant. But some of this, like, I mean, that's that's obviously that. like yeah. hyperbole. I yeah. don't, I'm not feeding into that or saying I should or we should. But I think at the same time, like I, I think you know, just exhausted. Like the Scott Pruitt stuff. Maybe at one point that would have shocked me and made me feel outraged. But at this point, I'm just like, come on. <laughs> I don't know. That like, does that seem? Maybe I should care. Maybe it's just like the constant onslaught of the next scandal, and 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 I'm kind of numb to it now. But yeah, I, I just, I'm not sure if the attention is always where it needs to be. Well, I mean, where, where there is smoke, there is fire. And there's been several plea deals, starting with Michael Flynn, mm-hmm. Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, George Papadopoulos, uh, Gates. So I, I think, like, whatever is there, mm-hmm. there, there that, that, that's just it. There is something there. And I'd be the victim someone in Trump's inner circle, um, or the president himself, it, it will ultimately come to the conclusion of the Mueller probe. It yeah. was most important, and I think the, the only thing that I, I would like, really would vehemently get behind is if any kind of interference were to happen in Nixonian faction, fashion to the independence of the Mueller probe, if, if something, if he were to fire mm-hmm. uh, Bob Mueller, it, it definitely raises a lot of questions um, and it's, it's interesting that there's been this really amazing reflection period on 1968 being 50 years ago and kind of looking back on the characters involved and just kind of the, the immense amount of violence and acrimony politically, but also in the, in, throughout the country. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting reflection period, but not, not to get too far off the track. I, I, I want to bring it back to a related point, but removing ourselves from our liberal bubble. Who are the victims of this very discussion? It, like, who, who is it of uncertainty? Like, the, 
I, I would say, just to, to, to throw out a few, the people who voted for Trump but voted for Obama beforehand, those, those union blue-collar Democrats who for years have been shifting a little bit right um, socially, uh, the, I think that they have real concerns that are really being kind of overlooked because they're not, they're, I mean, they're really just tied to like really global shifts in the economy and, and a factory moves and a town is completely decimated. Um, so that, that's an example. So I think that like their fears and their, their like plight needs to be addressed regardless of political party. But are there, are there any other types of victims that you guys kind of think of coming to mind right now when, when we kind of discuss the new way we discuss and absorb media? Two. Uh, immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, not DACA recipients for obvious reasons. Uh, but I would say anyone in the country, special, you know, protected mm -hmm. uh, rights. Even legal uh, immigrants. Or legal yeah. immigrants. Yeah. If you're not, I, I would say if you're not fully green card or above, mm -hmm. you have legitimate concerns and, you know, a legitimate uncertainty um, with the president and his viewpoint on completely shifting, you know, how we even admit immigrants to, yeah. you know, this country. Um, I'd say the other, you know, continues to be uh, people of color uh, who continue mm -hmm. to fall, you know, behind systemically. Uh, and, you know, the president touts, you know, for example, that, you know, a couple months ago during the State of the Union that African-American uh, unemployment rate was the lowest it was in history and it spiked up a point and a half, showing his, you know, idiocy of, you know, of understanding, you know, mm -hmm. unemployment. But even at its lowest point in history, it was still at six percent. Mm -hmm. You know, which is, you know, twice, you know, the white unemployment rate and two points higher than the national unemployment rate as is. You know, so two percentage points. Let me act like I'm a court student. Ah, there you go. <laughs> you know, I'm taking three classes of quant. Um, the log log model. You're right. Um, you know, so um, I, I think that both have completely suffered, you know, in, you know, this time. Um, I think the middle class is, I, is going to, is continuing to fall. You know, the economy is making moves, but I think middle class you know, I'm saying lower middle class is struggling to your point of that mm -hmm. union, blue collar worker. You know, I don't see the advancements they've gotten that Trump has promised in the last 18 months, you know, and who knows if they're going to come. I disagree with Pelosi that the tax cut was peanuts, you know, but I, I make six figures and I still make $200 a month mm -hmm. extra on the tax cut, which is nice, but I don't need to, didn't necessarily need that. You know, there are people who needed that money mm -hmm. that did yeah. not make or, you know, get a significant increase and or may owe taxes next year, you know. And mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, the tax cut bill, particularly centered on businesses and the rich, you know, really is not going to pass down to the middle class and those people are going to continue to suffer. Yeah, I think it's it's hitting on so many levels for those groups, especially. And, and we could talk all day. I mean, I could talk all day personally about... Um, you know, how it's affecting immigrants, not being one, but being married to one, and, and just the real material concerns and things that people have to deal with where they don't have the luxury of being able to plan, you know, they don't have the luxury of being able to say, well, I'll have these, you know, backup plans, and I'll just go back to my country, or I'll go back to this other country, it, it doesn't work like that, and there's a lot at stake 
um, not just for immigrants facing, you know, possible deportation or facing the possible rejection of, you know, a, an immigrant visa, but like for their families, for for the communities here that um, have a lot of immigrants, for the industries that rely on immigrant workers. So there's a mm-hmm. there's a lot to it, and then also for the um, you know, the, the people were talking about the blue collar base that it was kind of relying on this new era of, of attention and, and special treatment and like bringing them up because they've fallen behind so far. And I think, you know, I mean, just thinking about the, the strikes of the teachers and, and so in education, there's, it's hitting on so many levels where people are really feeling like there's so much need for, um, you know, communities of, of lower income and communities where there's not many resources and and with healthcare and and I think people kind of rely on on these figures to come in and and I, I'm sure a lot a lot of people voted for Trump under under that hope that it would be you know kind of like a salvation almost mm-hmm. for for their communities and they would see coal come back or whatever it was you know the tax cuts or and and you're right like it's not necessarily turning into material gains for them. And, you know, kind of from my academic, very, you know, removed standpoint, I, I'm very curious how that's going to play out and in, in, in voting in elections going forward. But in a more serious way, I think that it's um, it's still it's still a really big cause for concern and for everyone to focus on um, politics completely aside, because these are issues that we're going to come up against and, and need to battle with. Um, you know, there. You mentioned only like you scraped the surface on the issues w- between you know the inequality with people of color and and um, non minorities, and and so there's there's so much that this uncertainty really doesn't help with. Mm-hmm. And then on the more positive side, there's a lot that you know it's actually energized certain communities to get out there and yeah. and organize, and not maybe maybe not so much with immigrants because they don't always have the the means, but with other groups. Or the voice. Or the mm-hmm. voice, exactly. But, you know, with the teacher striking and things like yeah. that and uh, younger generations speaking out against um, guns and, and whatnot. So in some ways, you know, like we were talking earlier, there is the possibility of innovation or at least, you know, stirring the pot so that, you know, certain voices that weren't previously heard because it yeah. was just status quo are now rising, you know, to the surface and, and demanding attention. So we'll see where that goes. Um, I'm curious... Yeah, I just want to chime in. I think it was really ironic, and I haven't really thought about this till now um, as we were having this conversation. The teacher strikes are, being, are, are happening because they're all in unions. Mm-hmm. And so because unions have the right to strike. And it's ironic that we talk about the death of unions, and we have talked for a while about the death of unions, and there's a Supreme Court case out now mm-hmm. that the Supreme Court is expected to rule on that will, you know, the, the theory is it will cripple unions because it will cripple how they can Collect the bargain, collect, collect mm-hmm. the bargain, and capture fees. You know, for those unions. Yeah, it's union. It's because teachers are in unions. You know, that they have the ability to strike in West Virginia and demand those increases, and strike in Oklahoma and Arizona and those states as well. I think it's actually highly ironic. You know, many of those teachers, particularly in West Virginia, Oklahoma, are more likely than not voted for Trump. You know, but yet are taking advantage of pure democratic. You know, a pure Democrat, you know, principles and things that the Democratic Party stands for, you know, to actually get some of those gains. Mm-hmm. I always found it interesting that those, so I, being from Western PA, and everyone in my family was at one point in a union, but I grew up in a very, very red, socially 
um, religiously and very politically conservative area, the, the, the disposition between unions and political parties has severed more than I think any institutional characteristic in American life, more than religious, um, I would argue more than racially. I don't think there's any chance, the, the, just the, on a numbers scale, the decline of union participation is closing so quickly because of the rise of gig economies, um, consultant positions, which a few in this room may currently be in a position of. <laughs> um, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I agree, and I guess I, uh, I agree that to, to your, the, I think your underlying point. Correct me if I'm wrong. That there's no point in attacking the existing unions. I think there is a natural force that is slowly dwindling those forces and perhaps limiting to a few specific sectors like teachers, um, service workers, uh, the few remaining manufacturing workers. Um, but it's, it's, it's unfortunately. I would say, unfortunately, our country just wasn't built around union and the guild system to kind of be pervasive like other kind of Western European countries. That that's really prevalent. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there too because I've heard mm -hmm. some legitimate critiques that are not coming from just completely disparaging the idea of unions, but really trying to get at, well, does that model even work here? Is that the best model for organizing workers and and um, ultimately like working towards their benefit and maybe it's not as the economy transforms mm -hmm. and so maybe this is um, you know trying to be the eternal optimist here maybe this is the moment where yes like traditional unions are dying down in some ways we're seeing them still kind of exert their traditional like kind of force and, and get out there <laughs> exactly but you know maybe it's also a moment where or the beginning of a moment where workers will you know, start to reorganize or regroup or rethink how how they can, and I think it's something that needs to be done, you know, just thinking about the insecurities inherent in the gig economy. Mm -hmm. I think, it, you know, we might see some changes there or, you know, corporate power wins all, I don't know. But I yeah. think, you know, there's a lot of reorganization happening on so many levels in society and that's where I think this theme is really timely because there's a lot up in the air and a lot, a lot up for grabs, so to speak, and a lot at stake. And... And also connected to workers and unions is like um, certain industries and with trade and tariffs mm -hmm. and all of that. So I think, you know, yeah. they're doubly being impacted by um, not only Supreme Court decisions, but also um, trade tariffs and, yeah. and whether their industries will, you know, maybe there's like a, a fresh hope for some workers in this country or maybe that is completely false hope according to some economists, macroeconomists. But um, so there's, there's a lot going on that... Um, you know, it's, it's really shaking up, and I, I find it interesting. I I actually didn't realize, or hadn't thought about that either, about the teachers. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. It's yeah, it's interesting. And the, the, the victims and the, and the winners are, you know, perhaps they, they have voices, perhaps they don't. But I, I'm, I'm curious of, to, to your, both of your experiences, have, have you found that the way you communicate with those who have differing political beliefs changed at all during your two years in the court and two years of involvement in GBPR? Have, have you become, has any strategy worked or not worked? And I mean, a lot of the conversation I imagine happens in social media and I would be a firm advocate that no one has ever officially won a Facebook or Twitter <laughs> fight, no matter how hilarious um, some 
some different trends may be, but have you guys had any type of like experiences that may be kind of elucidating for our listeners about interacting with the political opposition? No, I mean, I, it's, you know, <laughs> primarily, you know, I didn't go to school. I went to very liberal school going to Florida and then for college, um, but it was also a predominantly, you know, 95 plus percent African-American school, so you got a lot of people with a lot of similar thoughts mm-hmm. politically uh, or non-concerned politically because they're not involved in the system. Um, so, you know, I've also had a bunch of non, you know, African-American friends who I talk politics with. You know, and they've always been conservatives, and I've had them for, since high school. You know, so I haven't had any real change in terms mm-hmm. of me operating, you know, in terms of the conversations that I've had. It's been similar conversations, different players, um, even coming to Georgetown. It's just more I understand how the system works better and can have more d- deeper, real policy conversations and understanding. Okay, mm-hmm. let, let, let me rephrase the question then. Suppose you're arguing with an undisclosed member of my family on Facebook, <laughs> and they said, we can't let refugees in here because they will rape and pillage and steal jobs from Americans. You retort, as a good public policy student would, well, actually, this white paper says that every illegal or legal immigrant pays taxes through their income bills, and they though they may not collect on Social Security, and here's these all these facts, and like read these sources through like good independent studies. That like that has been overwhelmingly unsuccessful in my experience. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think you can resort with facts. And most debates anymore. That I would say is a downfall. So are we are we beyond facts? Are we in a post fact era? It's been said. It's been said. Have we confirmed it? In some ways, I think a lot of this, particularly across social media, facts are important in a academic sense in an academic debate. Facts move very few in terms of pure what I think. What mm-hmm. moves you is how do I touch your values and how do I get you to think about it in a way that you can understand. And if I can mm-hmm. connect with you emotionally and personally while using some facts would be good. You know, <laughs> then, then I've been successful. But that might be secondary. You might, but facts yeah. are not the primary. So I, this is something... When you asked your first question, I thought, oh my gosh, when's the last time I actually talked with somebody with vastly different beliefs than me and I had an existential crisis? But the second thing I thought was, okay, there are people that I've, my own family, believe it or not, from Central Florida post some not lovable things sometimes, (laughs) especially with the recent gun debate, gun control debate. Um, so you're not alone in, in wishing you could just throw some statistics on a Facebook mm-hmm. comment and change the minds. However, I have not actually typed the words that inevitably come to mind every time I see a post. And so I think my personal change has happened more internally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I have talked with people that disagree with me, although maybe more from a moderate, safe point of point. So I can't really speak to that. How do we engage people who are so far on the other end of the spectrum? Um, but personally, I can say I pers- I have started to really slow down a lot. You know, I used to be a little more quick to want to react, a lot more reactive, a lot more just, oh, but how can you think that? And, um, and my realization was that I desperately need to really understand where these people are coming from mm-hmm. um, and, and what find out what's underneath. Um, 
and and to do that means you have to believe that there's something underneath which i don't know if i always did before so i think this whole transition this whole you know disrupted uncertain eras really brought me to kind of like a more humble place of trying to understand you know just what's going on and and realizing that it might be futile to pull up the best research you can find mm. with, with the most convincing statistics that a even try to appeal to humanity, you know? Yeah. And sometimes that doesn't work. And so I think it's, you know, inevitable that we'll always end up at loggerheads with certain types of people, mm -hmm. and that will probably never go away. But I think to Disraeli's point, a lot of these conversations need to happen offline, in exactly. person, in your family mm -hmm. dinners, when you actually interact with these people, and, you know, assuming that you need two parties to come to the table and mm -hmm. be willing to listen. You need two parties to be slightly humbled enough to think that yeah. what the other person says mm -hmm. might matter. And and obviously that's a tall order in some situations. But I think these, these conversations really need to happen offline and in person and in communities. And unfortunately, that is happening less and less. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some instances where people are trying to change that. But the most important thing and I'm better at saying this than doing this, is to really make yourself uncomfortable and have the conversations in person because beyond the facts, beyond the statistics, people are just kind of desperate to be involved for better or worse right now and desperate to have an opinion, desperate to repeat whatever they heard on their 24-hour news cycle because now they're tuning in. And I think a lot of it is just a lot of identity politics that's unhealthy. But if you can actually get to like the substance of like maybe it's fear that's motivating people to have mm -hmm. the views or whatever it is, I'm sure there's commonality. So I think that's kind of like a deeper cultural, moral conversation. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I I definitely have noticed my own internal changes in how I look at these conversations and how I choose to respond to them. But mm -hmm. no uh, strong points of success. I, I'm, <laughs> going, I'm going to embrace my inner liberal bubble light and read a quick quote from this the the current new yorker um by andrew maris benjamin franklin in 1727 with a bunch of friends designed the first chat room and his solution was called a secular chit chat and this is a quote of benjamin franklin from andrew marinettes in the newest new yorker the chat room was conducted in sincere spirit of inquiry after truth, without fondness for dispute or desire of victory. And I and I, I thought that was really just provoking, because at, at the heart of every single Facebook, Twitter, social media fight is the desire to win. I mean, the many many articles and points have been noted that this is a, a and now a zero sum game of politics, and and that's just really the the heart of I think what really helps drive um, the, the the division between liberal conservative democrat republican um, so it, it's it's a continuing issue and until we kind of embrace Benjamin Franklin's quote from 350 years ago I think that this this will continue to be a problem do you think that's going to happen organically though I mean this is something mm -hmm. I, I ask myself because like I just said it's a lot easier to say than do because a lot of our interaction with people that are different than us happens via social media and not in our communities. Um, yeah. I think that's true for a lot of people. So, I mean, so I'm trying to think practically, like, how, how do we get beyond this or how do we reject this idea that we're in a post-facts, post-truth era and how do we actually, like, on the ground 
you know, is it realistic that we will see that kind of interaction where people will come together seeking truth or, you know, in the spirit of inquiry? Yeah, I mean, that that's the the million dollar question. I, yeah, that's where all the conversations end because yeah. no, one, no one seems to yeah. answer. Yeah, yeah, Benjamin Franklin would start little five and six people groups of Jeffersonian dinners. And yeah, have there we go. That's what we need to so do. They, yeah, that, that's kind of what we're doing right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's find something we disagree about then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, I think it's up to all of us, not just to ask the question, but to, to kind of live it out and, and, and share like you just tried to do unsuccessfully to a degree, yeah. <laughs> share best practices. I'm like, oh yeah, this one time I had a tough conversation, but maybe it led to yeah. a better. It, it, I think at the, at the bottom of it, it we, we need to not alienate and demonize the opponent. I mean, it, it's easy for me to have arguments with relatives and, you know, loved ones and friends back home who hold completely antithetical beliefs because I, I, underneath, I, I, I love and I care for these people, but for the, you know, the person pushing the, the most egregiously offensive memes in the middle of Kentucky or, you know, in, in central California, I, I have no connection to them, but at, at a point we're, we're connected not only as as fellow citizens of a united country, but as, as humans. So I think like, it, there's a humanizing element to it that is, I think, exacerbated by the really venal ways that we discuss and argue through social media, through kind of people being in their own bubbles um, in their media diet. Um, and I, I, a lot of it, I think, has to do with people just kind of drifting away um, and not being engaged, and I, I think um, and a lot that many conservative writers have actually, like like Ross Douthat, have written that some of that drift is tied to, uh, especially young people, uh, removing themselves from long-held institutions. He, I mean, he he's he really points to people removing themselves from church, even from non-religious entities like the Scouts. Um, getting into, you know, athletic clubs, those things that kind of like teach character and build up um, teamwork. And even though you may be someone, teammates with someone of a different skin from a young age, so you kind of build that bond that you wouldn't typically have. So there, there's a lot of things that unite us even though we don't realize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for selfish reasons, because my computer is going to die in 10 minutes, <laughs> um, I think we need to wrap this up soon. Sure. So I think we I think we want to end on something fun. So the three of us are graduating, you know, in six weeks or so. Or so um, they say. Provided so <laughs> we get our DCCs and capstones yeah. done. But we're gonna Leslie, finish. if you're listening, please let us graduate. Somehow, someway, <laughs> we're going to finish. Um, so, you know, thoughts on, you know, our two years at McCourt and Anything you would have done different? Things you're happy that we did? Oh, man. Advice to you know future students who are listening to this podcast? I've been asked this question several times in a, in a variety of settings, and I always say something different. But I think what what I would really stress to I mean, not just people like in a, in you know first year or future students public policy, but really anyone you know, getting to our last question is put yourself in an uncomfortable situation where you can thrive and kind of learn something that you would totally have no prior experience with. So specifically, I, I wish I would have taken more classes outside of the court. There are some ridiculous barriers to do so mm -hmm. um, that, you know, Leslie, again, if you're listening to that, we should definitely talk about at some point. <laughs> but, you know, 
If it's I, still possible. It's still possible. It's still if possible. If you're willing to go the extra mile to take classes. <laughs> yeah, it is doable. Yeah, it is. for sure, for sure. But, I, you know, it's, it's an amazingly unique time being a graduate student that you'll never have such a dedicated focus block of your life to just learn like this. Um, very few have this opportunity. I, I, I don't think I took it for granted, but I, I kind of wish I would have struck out and tried to get into a few more really like classes that would have pushed me a bit more and you know on the, the mathematical side on a bit of maybe the computer programming side I mean that also has the added job or the benefit of uh, kind of you know signaling yourself out in the job market but that that would probably be my one thing I would have done differently yeah I'd say a couple of things um, very briefly I uh, also did not take classes outside of the court for a couple of reasons, I work full time, so one time, I, you know, ain't no time for that. Um, I had to kind of stack everything, and I do kind of wish that I wasn't working as much and could mm -hmm. really enjoy different classes and didn't take advantage of that. So I would say you can work full time and do this program, um, but you will make sacrifices in doing stuff. Um, in terms of the events, in terms of just stuff like that that I didn't really get to do that I wanted to do. Something like the Innovation Lab or the, yeah. you know, the Baker Grant, you know, I think would have been really neat had I had time to really do that, you know, full time. But I will say, though, the one thing I am happy to do, I took, I'm taking a class on uh, philanthropy and with a racial equity lens, mm -hmm. and we got to give out grants today uh, to, you know, nonprofits in the D.C. area working on racial equity. Um, based on values of our two different foundations. I actually, you know, advocated and wrote a memo for an organization. I can't announce it yet because it doesn't, they're not, they don't know yet, so I don't want them to know find out via listening to this podcast. But they're going to get a, a grant from Georgetown for $10,000, you know, to actually support their, you know, racial equity work. And to get to do something like that in an academic setting That's amazing. is really cool. Um, you know, so I think, you know, to Jake's point, I do wish I had taken some classes that may have pushed me differently from a policy perspective or mm -hmm. opened up my mind to different areas of policy. But I am satisfied in what the classes I had to take because I did take classes focused on political strategy or mm -hmm. you know racial inequality, and those are the things that I really do want to work on moving forward. And I think you know McCourt kind of helped shape that, you know, and the yeah. network you know that I'll have and the recognition from getting a degree from Georgetown so yeah you know the, the benefits outweigh the minuses for Leslie when you decide to listen you know, but, um, yes Leslie is our what is she the Dean of, the dean of academic affairs okay. yeah so the, she's our yes, academic the mother dean. of all things McCourt yeah, <laughs> of all things. you know but uh it was you know the sacrifices were worth it in the end you know but I do you know wish I was able to work more of the GU politics events, the bakery mm -hmm. events, you know, stuff like that. Some great organizations, yeah. That yeah. add real round our you know, degree. Yeah. Yeah, just to build off that, I, I I mean, I came here a year out of undergrad, not too much work experience, and I, I think the program's been incredible for me. I came here and did more than I thought I would do and got really involved and um, was really intense about getting good grades my first year and then <laughs> my how that has changed in the second year. But, um, you know, there's there's never, you're never going to feel like you went, had enough classes or took, you know, the right all the right professors or went to all the events you wanted to because there's just so much here. Mm. You know, there's so much to do and it's, it's, literally overwhelming um, they truly overwhelm you your first few weeks because you have to make decisions yeah. all of a sudden on what things to sign up for and apply for but 
I mean, it's been a really rewarding experience. I would say, though, that, um, you know, likewise, I, I wish I'd taken a few different classes, although that would mean not have taken the ones I did, and I feel pretty good about the ones I did take. So, I mean, that's a two-year program for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think... Truly, I, I wish I would have gone to more events. Uh, Georgetown brings some amazing guests yeah. to campus, and I, I definitely more than a few times said I couldn't go because I had whatever assignment or problem set or exam to study for, or I was just exhausted uh, from being a student. And and um, so I, I know for a fact I will one day look back and regret that, although I hope my alumni privileges yeah. give me access to some of these events when I have more time. <laughs> um, so that is one thing. And then also I think, you know, McCourt has been an amazing community. I, I think it's really amazing how, how much the students care to be here and be involved and um you know, blew me away how laid back everyone is and just kind of like genuinely interested in, in learning and being a good citizen of the world. Um, but beyond that, I wish that we weren't so siloed from the rest of the Georgetown community. Um, so kind of looking out at the other organizations that are present on campus, I know there are students who are kind of beginning to make those connections, but there's a lot of room for growth, for, for building connections with other um, organizations on campus. I've been involved with like McCord's energy and environment group but there's like a lot of other students on campus probably doing duplicative efforts or or interested in the same thing and there are a lot of connections that you know could have been made but probably weren't so that's one thing that I'll walk away thinking like okay that that might have been good so for all you future students out there um, not to overwhelm you but get to work work and start meeting all the people and making connections (laughs) and take all the classes and I would say the other thing get outside of the Georgetown bubble and yeah, no, that's what I was gonna say too. Yeah, you know, yeah. do I, and for yeah, various barely, reasons, yeah. didn't do a great job of really getting to enjoy DC for what DC is, and getting and not just drinking on the weekends right. when you're so overwhelmed that everyone's going out to the bar on 14th. Bar on U Street, yeah. Not on U Street or going out on 14th, but you know, actually getting in the community and going to the think tanks and taking advantage of the fact that you are in the policy capital of the U.S. You're in one of the major cities, you know, mm-hmm. for worldwide, you know, policy and stuff like that. And DC, you know, the, the decisions that come out of DC influence global markets. Yeah, right. You know, and so I, I think we didn't do a great job of taking advantage of that. And you know, I, I hopefully, you know, I think Jack, I know you're moving on back to, you know, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I don't, are you staying? I'll be like, here. Yeah. Yeah, staying I'm here. probably staying at least another year or so. So hopefully, we get to take advantage of that as a until we all reunite in North Carolina. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, and that's then, the plan. Yeah. So. <laughs> You know, I think that would be the other thing. Yeah. Rapid fire, favorite class. I can't. Favorite class. The philanthropy class. Philanthropy. Oh, I'm I'm like a four way die. Um, I loved Quant three. Believe it or not, oh, I'm actually, not no, even a statistics no. person, I, yes, and I, I loved Quant three. I will agree that I love Quant three. That class was with, the bees. Adam, Adam Thomas. Thomas. Adam Thomas. Thomas. Eighteen. Yes. Okay. Quant three. Uh, I can't believe who I am even saying that. But also, urban inequality was like totally outside my like concentration area, and I found that very enlightening. Enlightening, although difficult at times to just like emotionally handle. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm just gonna leave it there because those oh, yeah. are those are the top ones I'm gonna write. Uh, other than philanthropy class, I like my quant classes. Um, I would say I enjoyed micro one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really thought about econ like from that perspective, so I thought it was really good. Was it Shelly? No, I took uh, Professor Kerr, took Andreas Kerr, the Even program. We did a really Lovely. good job. We talked about uh, 
Bon Jovi a lot. <laughs> I'm a huge Bon Jovi fan. Every problem set Lo- involves Bon Jovi. Guys, low-key, I've seen over 25 Bon Jovi shows. Wow. wow. I followed them for a summer okay. in 2007. Wow. Learned something new. It's time. <laughs> for those who were uh, at the... Uh, the, the stuck around the entire time, you learned a little bit. Well, you were like, really attractive. Uh, and I would say political strategy with stealing your husband. They brought a lot uh, of yeah, that real, was real good, real good um, perspective from their previous work, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which, I, which you do get to take advantage of them, of course. The adjunct professors. They're great. Their, They're fantastic. A lot of their perspectives to the classroom, I think, is really dope. I was going to say, you, you definitely stole the words from my mouth, but Richard Reeves' uh, inequality class, that was a module that was paired with Harry Holzer's labor class was amazing. He just wrote his book on dream hoarding when he's a Brookings scholar, but it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, his book comes out in May. I'm actually taking it now. He's going to teach a class on his book. Nice. He's so excited. Oh, wow, that's great. <laughs> we, get, we get advanced copies of the book. Yeah, yeah, he signed it for us. It was really weird. Come to McCourt, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. So I, I think that's a great note to end yeah. unless you got anything yes. else to No, no, just, you know, thank you to everyone. Uh, thank you to everyone who's been a part of GPR this year, it's, it's been definitely the, the highlight of my personal two years here in McCord. It's just working with the smartest colleagues and uh, really just putting what we learn in our classroom, what we practice in our internships and our jobs into written practice. Um, and it's really just one of my favorite ways to learn is actually putting it into words and graphics and practicing what we hear. So for all everyone listening, uh, for everyone who's been involved, thank you. It's been a fantastic year. The spring launch, which will be released today, for those listening on Thursday, um, is going to be a smashing success. I could not thank Olivia and Emily, our senior spring editors, enough. All our data editors, um, everyone who's been involved, the authors, uh, you guys really did a, a fantastic job on top of being a, a full-time student, on top of working, on top of having whatever fraction of a social life that in eating that you guys somehow <laughs> squeezed in. Uh, it's, it's really quite impressive. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone.